Kent Online News. News you can trust. This is the Kent Online Podcast. Kate Faulkner. Hello, hope you're okay. Thank you for downloading today's podcast on Wednesday, January 24th. Our top story today, and this has been one of the most read stories online. Traffic lights outside a controversial housing estate in Ashford are set to be switched on next month despite criticism from residents and road users. Drivers have been facing delays on Willisborough Road while the lights are installed and changes to the road layout have been made. Lucy has more. The new estate, known officially as the Crown Hill View development in Kennington was given the green light in 2020, but not before it received 1,000 objections from the public. It's being built between the existing Little Burton and Conningbrook Lakes housing estates. Residents shared their concerns over the size of the new project and say they're worried once the 725 homes are finished, there won't be any green space left. Company bosses say they're frustrated at the complaints, calling them hard to stomach, but have promised to limit the impact on locals. The new traffic system will start next month after residents face delays and overnight closures. The first group of people are set to move into the large Burton development by spring. Kent Online News. A Kent teacher has been banned from the profession after being found to have looked at inappropriate pictures of children. Carrick Tanton, who taught at Haysbrook School in Tunbridge, admitted viewing images and videos since he was a teenager. A misconduct hearing has ruled the 33 three-year-old computer science teacher has brought the profession into disrepute. A 45-year-old man's been arrested on suspicion of breaking into a fire station on Sheppey and other properties in Whitstable and Minster. Personal belongings, including a bank card owned by a firefighter, were stolen during a raid on Sheerness High Street on Sunday. The suspect remains in custody. A shoplifter who stole more than £1,000 worth of goods from shops in Folkestone has been jailed. The 54-year-old took alcohol and luxury items from several stores in the space of a week. He's been locked up for 14 weeks and banned from entering the businesses he targeted for two years. It comes as a suspected shoplifter has been charged after clothes were stolen from a store in Ashford. Police were called to reports of several disturbances in the high street just over a week ago. A 24-year-old woman who hasn't got a permanent address is due in court on February the 1st. A rare sculpture by artist Salvador Dali has been stolen from a house in Broadstairs. Jewellery was also taken from the property on Albion Street at some stage between New Year's Eve and January the 5th. We've shared a picture of the rare bronze and marble piece on socials. A warning has gone out to avoid parts of Dover because of unsafe roof and debris caused by the recent strong winds. Fire crews have been sent to Citadel Crescent to try and secure the building. We're told no one's been injured. Kent Online News. A man who was almost hit by a car on a so-called ghost road in Ashford is calling for something to be done to stop speeding drivers. Avocet Way, which connects two new estates, isn't officially open and hasn't been adopted by roads bosses despite being built in 2017. But it's been reported some drivers are using it and going too fast. Police say they are aware of the issue and would look to take action against those breaking the law. The developers have also been asked for a comment. Almost 50 drivers have been stopped by police in and around Dover who've been responding to concerns over speeding. They've done checks in Whitfield, Woodnersborough, Deal and Lydon since the start of December. One vehicle was caught doing 53 miles per hour in a 30 zone. The head of an Ashford school that brought in pouches so children could lock their phones away says it's been even more successful than they'd imagined. We told you last month how the tech was being introduced at John Wallace Academy. A month on, Principal Damien Macbeth says every student is following the rules. One of the biggest surprises has been 
been in the, the restaurants and in the lunch hall, we've seen more noise, but it's really good noise. It's the noise of students talking to each other um, instead of looking at phones or listening to the buzz of a, a notification. They're actually engaging in, in conversations, in talk, they're laughing, they're playing games. Um, it's been a, a, a really positive start to 2024. And so you were in no phones. Excuse me, you were in no friend's school anyway. So what made you take this extra step to introduce the pouches? I think uh, previously we had a, a policy of phones needs to be switched off and in the bottom of a bag. Um, very often that, that, that was hard to, to police and, and hard to, to, to manage as a school. Students would often have phones on the inside of their pockets. Um, they'd have constant distractions of, of the buzzing of a notification uh, or messages throughout the day. Um, and that temptation was always there for students and asking them you know, not, to, not to look at their phones during their free time, when they're in the, you know, going to the bathrooms. There was always that temptation. And the only way as a school we could police that was to, to sanction. And it felt like uh, we were spending so much time uh, chasing students and asking them to, to comply. Since putting the pouches in place, it's a proactive step to do something about it and a proactive way in which you say, well, this is our routine now. This is how we manage phones. Um, which means that you know, if students do uh, not follow the rules, then there are very clear warnings and then sanctions in place. Um, but we're just not seeing that. We're, we're seeing so few students who are not compliant, who are not following the new system. And it's been wonderful. And did you expect it to, to go smoothly? You must have sort of expected a bit of backlash from some pupils. Yep, we took a deep breath. Um, we'd, uh, on the first day, we'd set the hall up uh, for those students who, who refused. We, we were expecting uh, some refusal. We expect, uh, when we announced it, some students have been quite vocal in, in you know, well, I won't do this. Um, the vast majority of students in this school are always compliant. So we knew that the majority of students would comply, but we had a system in place for, for tackling any students who, who didn't. Um, so we gave out nearly 1,200 phones uh, in, in, on the first day. And out of all those students, there were only five students who refused to comply. And we were slightly taken back by, by those numbers. Um, by the second day, those students who hadn't complied were then putting their phones in pouches and engaged and, and following the, the, the new rules. And I think we, we'd planned very carefully for the what-ifs. And I think by doing that, we were well prepared for a pushback if it came. But, but the students have been absolutely fantastic and they've embraced this um, as the new way we do things in the school. Brilliant. And describe to me um, how the, the morning works. So people will obviously come in through the gates and they'll look up their phones in the pouches straight away. Yep, so um, students, as they arrive in school, uh, we have un unlocking stations where they can unlock their pouch, pop their phone inside and lock it up. They then uh, go to the morning welcome team, and that comprises of a senior leader in the academy, of some of the directors, the head of year, and some of the pastoral team. Um, they, are, they have a welcome, they're checked for uniform, they're checked for do they have their pouch with them, and just general welfare check to make sure they're okay. Usually a, a smile and a good morning is, is always nice as well. Um, and that routine has led to a much calmer, much quieter corridors and a really nice start to the day as students arrive and make their way to class um, as part of the new, new systems and routines. And you've obviously got other schools coming in to look at this as well. Can you talk to me about that? Yep. Uh, later this week we have um, lots of uh, senior leaders from other Ashford secondary schools. Um, we are not by any means saying that we have mastered this. We are very much in the implementation stage. This is something new for us. We're four weeks in um, and we are still learning ourselves. 
But that's a great opportunity for other schools to come and see what's happening. And we've been really clear since the start of this that we're willing to open our doors. We'll let other people come and learn with us rather than us tell them this works. Come and see what we're doing. See the things that have worked. See the things that we need to improve. Um, and, and the interest and the take up from other schools has been really, really eye opening. I, I, since, the, since we announced we were doing this, I, I had a flood of emails uh, of schools wanting to see what we're doing and how it works. Um, and, and we're opening up the doors to show them and, and bring people in. Senior leadership teams from other schools in the town are visiting this week to see how it works. Kent Online News. Plans to open a business and enterprise campus on the sites of Chatham Docks have been formally submitted. If approved, some existing warehouses will be demolished to make way for 19 units along with a walkway, cycle route and green spaces. Molsters say it'll link the area to homes already being built as part of a major riverside development. James Whittaker is the Executive Director of Peel waters who are behind it. Basin 3 is a plan application of 320,000 square feet. So it's quite a large uh, application that sits on a roughly just short of 20 acres of land. That site is basically along Pier Road in between sort of the, the current Basin 3 and Pier Road that's currently a brownfield site. Uh, heavily heavily used. Um, so we're bringing forward this employment space, but in that employment space, there'll be business enterprise, the manufacturing and technology, life sciences, so really flexible space. It could even be sort of small workshops for independent um, you know, businesses. So a really nice mix and flexible employment space. It's an outlying plan application um, on 20 acres, as I say. Um, that is being submitted uh, on Friday. Um, hopefully it will get registered in the next few days. Um, and that will be our next phase of development, bringing forward the jobs first as part of you know, the overall of, of Chatham Waters. So yeah, really excited about it. We've got strong interest from occupiers. Um, but we won't be delivering this until 2026 because we've got currently occupation of the site until end of 25. Um, so obviously we can't start works until 26, but we've got some strong interest from developers, strong interest from occupiers. It sits adjacent to four universities, um, 17,000 students. I understand that uh, that obviously um, are educated. Uh, close by. There's a nice pedestrian link and footbridge between the two. So it's really how we can improve that linkages between those universities and the waterfront and really open this site to the public uh, for better improved pedestrians, better improved cycleways and open up the whole waterfront for the local um, residents. And sort of what do you think that the, the Basin 3 development, this regeneration, what, what do you think it really represents for Medway? Uh, it re represents the opportunity for employment growth and economic growth, um, because at this moment in time, actually, there isn't much land, there isn't much space for businesses to grow into. Um, you know, you speak to a number of occupiers going, yeah, we're in 20,000 square feet, I need a building of 50,000 square feet, but there isn't anything available in Medway. So when you actually look at potential growth for Medway, especially in terms of economic growth and job growth, they need more land to come through for planning purposes, you know, sort of for employment purposes on brownfield site, preferably rather than green, green, green belt land. Um, and we consider this as an ideal location to connect those communities of St. Mary's Island, Gillingham Pier, Gillingham North, looking at how we can potentially bring the old railway line into play as well, linking to Gillingham Station, to Chatham Waters. So it brings a whole breadth of benefits to the local communities. Um, and so, I mean, 
how have you made sure, you know, sort of in the development of these plans for Basin 3 and that, that, that you are so, I mean, you mentioned lots of things there about sort of the, the waterfront walk and, uh, and on all this, these connections. How have you made sure that you're serving the needs of local people? Well, we, we did a, uh, a couple of days public consultation um, quite a few months ago. Um, that it was well received and well supported by local communities. We'd listened to what they had to say in terms of actually how we can improve on the plans. And so therefore we've tweaked the plans a little bit in terms of listening to their comments, uh, adhering to those comments and actually improving on them, which is obviously things like a, a tree line boulevard along the waterfront that will include cycleway, pedestrian way, linking into St. Mary's Island, and then looking at the pedestrian links. So actually rather than walking down the dual carriageways currently appear road, uh, actually if you're now walking from St. Mary's Island and you let's say you're walking to the Asda on Chatham Waters, you can now walk along a tree line promenade on the waterfront uh, away from the heavy traffic and it will be a much pleasant environment than it currently is. So sort of we've listened to uh, the you know people, we've listened to the residents, we've listened to the communities and made those improvements. We feel this is the right scheme to come forward at this point in time. Campaigners want the site retained as a working port. Southeastern have confirmed they won't be running any services in Kent next Tuesday as drivers go out on strike. Members of the ASLEF union are taking action in different areas over several days as part of long-running disputes over pay. Services in Kent won't be affected on any other day. The man in charge of the Reform Party has revealed he's left the door open for Nigel Farage if he wants to stand at the next election. Leader Richard Tice has said Kent will be a key battleground not least because of Brexit. They've named candidates in all but two constituencies in the county. The vote's expected to happen in the autumn. The site of a former library in Maidstone could become two tower blocks. Bosses say the development in the Springfield area would have more than 100 properties in total, with one block six storeys high and the others up to 10. We're told an underground car park would also be built for residents. It comes as campaigners have welcomed a U-turn on plans to try and sell off a number of Kent's libraries. We told you at the weekend how council bosses had said 99 in the county was too many and buildings could go in a bid to save money. They've now said there are no plans despite financial pressures. Faversham and Mid-Kent Green Party candidate Hannah Temple is pleased and says they're vital facilities. There are some amazing services through libraries of being able to access loads of online publications, um, also being able to request books to be transferred from other libraries. It's a really fantastic service in terms of just the practicality. But then I think there are also a huge spectrum of other services that libraries provide. Just being a, a warm and safe space that anyone can go to. You don't need to buy anything. It's one of the very few places that we have left where you don't have to buy anything. You're welcome. No matter who you are, no matter what your income bracket, no matter what your background, you are able to use that service and you are welcome to be in that public space as yours. I think that's a really precious thing. Um, and we can see that being taken advantage of. I was visiting Faversham Library earlier today and there was a knitting group there using some of the space. There were people studying. Um, I know that services like language courses are available there. I, I think in many cases, particularly in villages where we've seen other services like pubs or community centres or childcare centres be cut or removed. They're really kind of the remaining hub of communities, a space where people can gather to meet, to do activities together. So I think we lose practical things. We lose an amazing, precious and increasingly rare space. But I think we also lose something kind of intangible. We lose a recognition that these things matter, that these spaces, these services that 
aren't necessarily, um, I don't know, always commercially via, aren't always commercially kind of, that's not their main purpose. They represent something of the spirit and soul of what we care about in this country, that we recognize that it is important to offer spaces for people to learn, for anyone to come to, no matter who they are. Kent Online News. He's famous for visiting some of the most spectacular places on earth, but Sir Michael Palin has paid a visit to a pub in Kent. The broadcaster, who found fame as a TV actor and member of the Monty Python, was at the Sir John Franklin in Greenhithe to commemorate the spot where the ill-fated Franklin expedition first set sail. The British voyage of Arctic exploration left England in 1845, but the two ships, the HMS Erebus and HMS Terror, would never return. Sir Michael has spoken of his fascination with the story. What? drew me to the story was that it not been told, particularly the first part of Erebus's life when it went on an expedition down to Antarctica and that was the first time people have gone that far south ever in history. They were the first people to see you know, the, the, the very southern parts of the, of the Antarctic continent. Um, and I think it, was, it wasn't a military expedition. There was no fighting involved, there was no victory, there was no, uh, you know, they, they just got on with the job and acquired an awful lot of information, very valuable information uh, for future generations as to what it was like down in the Antarctic. But they were away for four years. By the time they came back, people felt, oh, well, you know, they've almost forgotten why they'd gone there. Whereas this expedition, the Franklin expedition to the Northwest Passage, now that was at the time considered to be something very, very important. And they were given a lot of money, the ships were full of, you know, very well supplied and all that sort of thing. Um, but then this, that the expedition that left from here in, um, in Greenhithe, of course failed. And failure and death became sort of fascinating to people. Um, but I think it's forgotten because it was, you know, it was a failure and they got, we've got through it, don't, don't let's go back to that. But a lot of people um, for the last 100, 150 years have been determined to try and find out what happened to Franklin because there's never been a loss of life quite like this. And because of the conditions, because they were trapped in ice and they couldn't move, how did they die? How long did it take them to die? Why didn't they leave the ships and try and get to the mainland? Why didn't they trade with the Inuit? So all these sort of things going on. So it's become actually a story which, which has no end. I mean, we're still, they're still finding out information. There's still enormous numbers of people who are interested in the story. The Canadian Parts Authority are... Um, uh, have dived down into the ships which they discovered in 2014, 2016. So, you know, it's an, on, it's an ongoing story, but at the time I think it got fairly quickly forgotten. And it's becoming more part of the public consciousness, obviously, your book. Um, there was the book The Terror and the series yeah, that came yeah, yeah. out recently as well. What would you say to, you know, history buffs or just people with a general interest in, in expeditions in this sort of area? What would be a big kind of hook to bring them in to get interested in this part of history? I think the hook is what happened. Um, you know, this, the, the expedition, people knew about the ships, they knew about the men, the, they, they had all had form as, as, as naval successes. So the hook would be, it's a detective story really, it's a mystery story. What exactly went wrong? Why did it go wrong? 
should they have been in a different place? Did they take the right course at a certain time? All, all, it's all hypothetical, but there's always that feeling that we will find some documents somewhere. The Navy was absolutely obsessive about documents. Everything was written down. Where are these pages? Are they, you know, have they blown about the Antarctic and been lost? Are some of them on board the ship that this, this, this might still be found? So this, that, that's the hook of this one, is, you know, it's, it's be the one to, to, to uh, solve the, um, the, the, the mystery of what happened to Erebus and Terra. The ships were discovered in 2014, but many questions around the expedition and the crew remain unanswered. An empty cafe in Canterbury has been turned into a pop-up art shop selling work by college students and people who have been helped by a homelessness charity. The building on Castle Street will be open for the next four weeks as part of a pilot project. The idea is to bring empty spaces back into use and also inspire the local creative community. Campaigners who clubbed together to save a pub near Sittingbourne have been nominated for a national award. Villagers in Stopbury managed to buy the Harrow, which could have been turned into housing after it was sold by Shepherd Neem. They're now up for the Community Pub Hero Award. A Ken winemaker has reported a strong growth in sales for its sparkling wine. Tenderton-based Chapel Down says sales were up 25% last year to £12 million. That's up from £9.6 the previous year. The company's also got planning permission to build a new winery in Canterbury. And Kent's first cross-channel swimmer, Michael Jennings, has died at the age of of 85. The former Royal Marines commando from Hartley completed the challenge in 1960 and was invited to be an Olympic torchbearer at London 2012. He passed away in hospital on Monday. His family have paid tribute saying he had the most wonderful sense of humour. Kent Online Sports. Briefly in football, Gillingham's under-18s have been knocked out in the fourth round of the FA Youth Cup. They lost 3-0 to Sunderland at Priestfield last night. That's all from us today. Thanks ever so much for listening. Don't forget you can follow us on Facebook, X, Instagram, TikTok and Threads. You can also get the details on the top stories direct to your email each morning via the briefing. To sign up, just head to kentonline.co.uk. News you can trust. This is the Kent Online Podcast.